You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In the year 2001, there was an art exhibition titled Super Flat. Now, the term super flat refers not only to the way the art looks, it all has this very flat, superficial, two-dimensional appearance, which is rooted in Japanese sort of pictorial traditions, the way that things from anime to traditional prints were created with these outlines that make everything sort of look very flat and a rejection of sort of the linear perspective we see in Western art. But super flat was also sort of a commentary on the sort of emptiness of consumer culture. And in some ways, you might argue there is a flattening of society as we have sort of chipped away the boundaries between, quote unquote, high art, high culture and pop art, which used to be sort of seen as a lower culture. Now, the artist behind this super flat exhibition, which really took root around the world and became the super flat movement, was an artist who is well-known and beloved for his combination of modern and traditional Japanese art-making practices. I'm, of course, talking about Takashi Murakami. I feel like who art ed. Who art ed? Mr. Wood art ed me. Either way, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood. And joining me today, I have Toki from Japan Explained, the podcast that explains Japanese history and culture, one episode, one event at a time. Thanks for taking the time. You're welcome. Nice to meet you today. Yeah, I appreciate you joining me all the way from the Netherlands. Crazy time change. What, seven or eight hours difference? I'm glad we were able to coordinate. Yeah, it's seven hours difference, so it's evening for me here. Awesome. So I I thought you would be perfect for this episode because we're looking at a Japanese artist. Um, I've always said Takashi Murakami, but you you were telling me it's. Let's see if I can get it right this time. Takashi Murakami. Takashi Murakami. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, I feel like I'm getting closer. I'm. I'm never going to quite pronounce somebody's name correctly, even if they are like one of the most prominent contemporary artists out there on the scene today. Um, So, you know, to get into a little bit of the background, Murakami, still feel like I didn't quite get that right. Um, 
Yeah. He was, he was born um, February 1st, 1962 in Tokyo, Japan. And, you know, early on, he was, from what I understand, quite the fan of manga um, and, you know, wanted to work in animation. So he attended Tokyo University of the Arts, and he initially intended to study like drafting, become an animator, as I said. But he ended up studying traditional painting style. Uh, can you help me out with this pronunciation? I want to say yes. The traditional style is called Nihonga. Nihonga. Thank you. Nihonga. Nihonga. Um, it, it literally means Japanese painting. Yeah, and. It, Go ahead. Uh, is it okay if I interrupt you? It's uh, oh. sorry. In Japan, in the middle of 19th century, the country opened to the world, and before Japan was secluded nation, so they didn't have to distinguish what was Japanese from what was from the outside. In the mid 19th century, all of a sudden, it became an issue, so they started separating everything, and there was. Western painting and Japanese painting to oppose it. And Japanese painting is basically Nihonga. Yeah. And so, you know, um, Murakami, Murakami, never gonna get, uh, <laughs> he's studying that Nihonga, the traditional Japanese painting. Um, and that was like a, a 19th century style and earlier style. And, you know, he was born in 1960s. So, quite a bit later, what he was trying to do, I got the sense from all of my reading, was he wanted to sort of combine the traditional Japanese style or elements of the traditional Japanese style, but make it a little bit more modern and embrace a bit of Western influence. And so for for a period early in his career, he actually left Japan and started to take in that that style, like the pop art movement that was all over America and Europe in, in the, the mid to late 20th century. Um, you know, he really embraced that and brought those elements in. But what I find most interesting is he didn't abandon the traditional style. He just sort of brought it into the the more modern era and sort of synthesized or brought together these different techniques and different approaches. Yes, uh, I actually saw the same. And uh, he's criticized in Japan, apparently. I didn't know about that uh, before I started uh, preparing myself for the episode. Uh, I feel like but, anybody who becomes big and popular is going to be criticized. You know what I mean? Yeah, but apparently he's criticized for, I didn't understand a good reason for, for what he essentially criticized for. It's like he's bringing the low art, like manga, very casual things that people read on everyday basis. And he's trying to make it high art. And apparently a lot of people didn't like that. Yeah, his big thing is what he refers to as super flat. It's this flattening of culture and essentially breaking down the divisions between the quote-unquote high and low art. And historically, there has been a very marked difference. You know, there were the sophisticated artists of the gallery world, and then there were, you know, sort of the less respected everyday artists. Think of the difference between, say, Pablo Picasso and your standard Disney animator. Both of them are creating works of art that people are enjoying, but because they're geared towards a different audience, they have a different sort of 
clout or stature in society. And um, Murakami, he never going to get that right. <laughs> I see you laughing at me, but uh, thank you. I, I appreciate that, that you're nice about it. Um, he, he, like a lot of other, you know, it, we saw this in, in Western art too, with like Andy Warhol and, you know, Keith Haring and, and other pop artists, a big idea behind that movement was to recognize that this artwork that's created outside of the gallery context it matters. People connect to it. And it says something about our, our everyday lives. And that's worth examining and elevating. And uh, Murakami has done this in a really interesting way. Yeah, I, I would totally agree here with you. It's uh, it's really interesting because I'm not a big fan personally of classical art because you need a lot of background knowledge to understand what the artists are painting which period it is, which style, and a lot of this background information that a regular person doesn't have. When with pop art, modern art, it's more kind of, you don't have to have this background knowledge because it's it's already in you. You already know all these pop culture characters, for example, or you live in the same time period, basically. So you have the same values as the artist. And I find it more interesting this way. I can really relate to this art. Yeah. I, and I think that's, I think that's why it is such a popular movement is because it is something that you have this instant connection to. And one of the things I always find about pop art and the pop art movement, and we're talking about popular culture I always try to explain to to my students, like, it's not popular necessarily in the sense that everybody likes it, but everybody is familiar with it and has a connection to it. You know, like Andy Warhol with the soup cans. It's not that everybody just loves soup. You know, it's that everybody's got it in their pantry or in their cabinets. You know, everybody has some experiences for better or worse. You have that entry point as you said, without having to do that study, without having to do that background, um, like contextual information, um, which now that I'm thinking about it and saying out loud, I feel a little bit conflicted because that's kind of the premise of this entire podcast series is giving people that background and contextual information. So the embrace of it could somewhat put me out of a job and yet I still love it. I, I absolutely love it because it's like it's democratic principles applied to the art world in a lot of ways. Yes. Yeah. I have nothing to add to that. Yeah. Have you ever wondered who the Mary was from Bloody Mary? If the Loch Ness Monster was real or if Ouija boards actually worked? On each episode of the family-friendly Unspookable we look at the histories and mysteries behind your favorite scary stories, myths, and urban legends to get the real stories behind the scares. Want to solve your next mystery? Find and follow Unspookable now wherever you get your podcasts. Now would be a good time to shift towards like a specific work of art and I wanted to talk about his Mr. Dobbs character, that that figure, because that is one of the characters that 
he is really best known for. Mr. Dobbs is a recurring motif in numerous paintings and sculptures and other works of art. Um, that's another thing, you know, he embraces all different media. Like he's not just a painter, even though he studied traditional painting, he works collaboratively, commissions things. He, he has his designs on all sorts of things that are mass produced and accessible to everyone as well as the fine art that goes in the galleries and the museums and things like that, which again, it's sort of similar to Keith Haring with his pop shop, making the art available to everybody at a price everybody can afford for at least some things. Um, I think that's kind of a cool thing for someone who can command, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars for his works of art. He also makes things that are like $10 for other people. And again, that, That goes into that super flat thing, you know, um, you may not be able to afford one of his oil paintings, but everybody can get stickers and things like that with his work. Um, and so Mr. Dobbs is one of the characters that's come up a lot and Mr. Mr. Dobbs, I'm going to ask for your help on the Japanese phrase, dobojit, dobojite, dobojite, dobojite. I actually had to look into that because it's not standard Japanese. Okay. Apparently, uh, it was a manga long time ago. Well, again, inspiration by manga. Uh, and there was one character who was doing the finger gesture and saying, dobojite, dobojite. Apparently, it was a popular gag at the time. It's not okay. used anymore. Okay. Yeah. And so it was like, it, but again, it's drawing this reference from from the um from the manga from the lower sort of the vernacular the the everyday artwork and from what i've read it's it was almost like a slang term that kind of meant why right yeah it's it's a slang term and actually it's already a dead slang term it's dead slang yeah (laughs) um you know but it's really funny which is just like me, I guess, dating myself with like, you know, all of my slang terms are out of date too. As I use words like rad all the time. But um, the the Mr. Dobbs character, which I guess it makes sense that it's an older slang term because it first appeared in like 1996. So now we're talking like 25 years ago. And, you know, it first appeared in one of his paintings in 1996, as I said. And it's been a recurring motif and recurring figure throughout a lot of his work. I want, I always like to try to give um, guests the, a little bit of choice here. Uh, would you rather talk about this painting 727, which was the first appearance of Mr. Dobbs or the untitled piece from 2019, which I feel like shows a little bit of like an interesting evolution on the character. I actually like the evolution between them because 727 looks kind of like one of the inspirational characters for Mr. Dog meeting Mickey Mouse, uh-huh. while the untitled painting from 2019, it's, it evolves and it more reflects what's popular more now. It, it looks kind of like, oh, what is this cartoon with uh, like Lily? With little girls, like we can kind of have like half robots. There's it there's a little me. bit of a, almost like Powerpuff 
kind of yes yes thing. the power puffs it, it looks like power puffs and it also reminds coloring book so much while in the first one you obviously see the the still the background in japanese painting yeah like, the yeah the, the 727 that uh, initial painting we see the cartoonish figure of Mr. Dobbs that has that flat painting style where like the colors are like more or less uniform. Um, there, there's not a lot of like shading happening there, but then in the background, we see these sort of washes of colors, the, the layers and the depth that is a little bit more traditional and like the wave movement across there kind of reminds me of like Hokusai's great wave exactly. or those, those older prints. Um, which kind of is an interesting combination of those things. It's, it feels like it's literally inserting 20th century techniques into a 19th century work. Um, and then in his untitled piece from, from 2019, I feel like he's pushed things in such a great way because first of all, it's a canvas that's mounted on wood and it's a shaped canvas. So the, the canvas is in the silhouette of that Mr. Dobbs head, which also coincidentally is kind of the silhouette of Mickey Mouse's head. But then inside of that silhouette, we see a repetition of the Mr. Dobbs figure with different expressions and different color schemes. And so it's like, it's this range of emotions. I, I think of it almost like a psychological portrait where it's like, I can see like the, the, the different aspects of personality kind of trying to come through and, and yes, fight for, like for one dominance. Face, one face looks scared, then the other one looks surprised, and there is like grinding angry or something like that face at the bottom. It's it's really interesting. Yeah, and, and I think it's also really interesting because as you talked about, like one seems scared and one seems angry, the colors that he's using all seem so bright and fun. They're like, they're practically like fluorescent colors in, in a lot of these things. Like on there's, it's got like sharp pointy teeth, but it, they're like a bright rainbow of like just super saturated colors, which you tend to associate more with like fun, cartoony, lighthearted stuff. Um, and so again, there's, there's almost this like push pull dynamic where you see these contradictions that almost shouldn't work. He's using strategies that sort of undercut one element or another, and yet it does work. And, and for me as like, you know, the, the art nerd, I always find it really fascinating when somebody does something that seems like it's against the theories, you know, it flies yes. in the face of what I would traditionally expect. I always found it weird, but I kind of see it now Roman artist and somehow it rings the bell, but I like it. Yeah. And, and, and there is this sort of like, there is a little bit of discomfort sometimes when you see that jarring contradiction, you know, because it's not meeting expectations. And, you know, for me, that's, that's exciting. That's something to investigate, but I totally understand where you could see that also as, a little bit jarring and uncomfortable and unsettling because there's something so satisfying about something that's just neatly executed and rendered and meeting expectations, you know? Like that can be very soothing and comfortable when 
you know, Mickey Mouse looks like Mickey Mouse and doesn't have the sharp pointy teeth or some, you know. Yes. Uh, so I guess. I, I was actually, uh, sorry. No, <laughs> sorry go ahead. I was actually wondering because it gives so much different ways of colorless painting. Does he make different variants of it, of the same one? Or it's always like one painting is defined and that's it. Then let's go to the next one. Um, so, like, with his body of work, he's not doing series the way that, like, like Andy Warhol would do a repetition of the same subject, but changing the colors. And he's doing more stuff, like, like he's doing more traditional painting methods that are a little bit more unique, but he does variations on the same themes. So, he he wouldn't have like a screen print stencil that has this Mr. Dobbs character and, and do a series of them that are identical except for changing that one element of the color. But he has made numerous versions of Mr. Dobbs. You know what I'm saying? So yes. th there is that series and that, that repetition, but it's more like artisanal handcrafted and much more unique variations on them than we might see from some other pop artists. Okay. Thank you very much. Yeah. And so I guess, unless you have anything else, should we turn to the third segment and wrap it up? Uh, I was actually, I wanted to add one point about Mr. Dobb as a character yeah. because one of the inspirations for it is again coming from manga, actually a lot of inspiration for him coming from manga, games and stuff. Like People see Sonic there, but one biggest one that people, in at least in Japanese media, what I found is a yokai, a Japanese monster from very famous uh, anime by Mizuki Shigeru. And in anime, it's a character called Tantanbo. It's a giant ball with teeth and hair on his head. And uh, I found an interesting connection between Mr. Dob and Japanese yokai because in Western world, we are more we tend to find monsters only evil. Yeah. When in Japan, monsters are very human-like. So from old times, from like 6th, 17th century, people were using monsters to show people. If they found something in society that they want to emphasize, like, look, this is weird. It was very interesting to use monsters instead of people in, to tell the story. And I find Mr. Dog is doing kind of the same. It's this Japanese not bad, not good monster that is now representing people and showing us what we are wrong and what should we, what should we look into nowadays? Why we are treating art differently, for example. Oh, that's fantastic! I that is such a great connection and so much more depth than than I had, you know, even when I was like re researching this, because I'm drawing connections to like, I see the connection to Hokusai and I'm going to be honest, my experience with like manga and, and anime is basically limited to, um, you know, Miyazaki. I've seen like a few of his stuff, but I know there's so much more out there. And, you know, I, this is one of those moments where I'm just so glad and want to just shamelessly shill for your podcast, Japan Explained, because you're bringing in that depth of knowledge with the connections to these 
maybe at least lesser known to me, other characters and the philosophy behind them. Because that's the thing I find most interesting is what you said there about how the the Japanese conception of the monster is very different from the way I've pictured monsters. Like I've always pictured monsters as they are all something to be feared. It's what's, you know, lurking in the shadows. Whereas this is more like monsters are like people. There's a range of them. They all have different personalities and different motivations and will behave differently. Um, which I, I find a, a, probably a, a nicer way of conceptualizing, you know, imaginary figures. So I think that's that's a really cool connection to end on. And I'm wrapping it up. I want just a three-point rating scale. And where should this hang? The loo? Is this something to look at? The lab? Is this something to learn from? Or the loo? British for the bathroom. Yeah, there's the loo joke in there somewhere. Oh, that's terrible. Oh. I wanted to say it's for the loo, but actually for different reasons. <laughs> okay, go for it. Uh, I don't want to get... I don't think it's a waste. I think it's actually very interesting work because it makes you think. But... It's not for the Louvre. It's not something you want to to see on your trip to the museum next to Mona Lisa. Yeah. At the same time, it's not for the lab because I don't see something that I can learn scientifically there, like as art mm-hmm. historian. I don't, I don't know. I'm pretty sure art historians would disagree with me, but <laughs> uh, I don't think like I can learn much from it as from the art piece, but. What I can learn from it is I can learn from it as a human. It makes yeah. me think about a lot of different things as a human. And humans, normal humans, they have a lot of free time in the loop. <laughs> Love that. Love that. Um, I was I was actually very similar rationale, but I, I would put it in, in the lab just because whether it's a scientific breakthrough or not, I just feel like, you know, what I'm getting at there is it's one it's one for us to learn from. And what separates that from a museum piece to me is the museum piece, I feel like is something that is going to be timeless. That's, you know, is going to last for a long time. And this to me feels like it says something about the time and the culture in which it's created. And I feel like there's an interesting synthesis. There's a cross, like cross cultural connections to be made to it. Um, and and I think he's done something really cool in bringing Japanese artistic traditions into the, the more modern era. And so now maybe I'm talking myself into it being a museum piece. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I always find the more, the more thought I give to a work of art, the more I, I find that I appreciate about it. So yeah, I guess, uh, very much like his body of work, it crossed, it cuts across all different categories and has a little something there for, for everyone and everything. So yeah, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna punt on this one and just say it defies category categorization for me. Cause I can make an argument for every one of them. And I feel like I just did on some level. And I think Urakami is with you on that because you said yourself he has really expensive pieces and he has sculpture, he has paintings with oil or oil paintings. But at the same time, he has stickers. So you can put a sculpture in the Louvre, a painting in the lab and a sticker in the Louvre. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so thank you very much. I've really enjoyed taking time to talk with you and learn from you. Um, you know, once again, my guest Toki joined me from the Netherlands uh, and host of Japan Explained, a podcast available wherever you're listening. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. It was really interesting to learn about a Japanese artist I've never heard about before. I'm always glad I can help someone learn something new. So thank you. Thank you very much. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted? If you found this tolerable, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week in the show notes on Twitter at WoodArtEd and on the website whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.